Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for beautiful worship today. Continue our Matthean sermon series. So if you would turn to Matthew's gospel, the fifth chapter, Matthew chapter five, above and beyond. If you can't do any better than that, then you might as well just forget it. Those are the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 20. Unless your righteousness surpasses that, the scribes and the Pharisees, then, well, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he sets forth five illustrations about how we, his followers, must do better than that. In each one of these cases, we have the contrasting formula. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. You have heard it said of old, but now I, your rabbi, say to you. Now, he's already made clear that he did not come to destroy the law, but rather to fulfill the law. And now he shows how his existence as the Messiah fulfills the law and how his people are to apply the law to themselves. Now, in this particular part of the New Testament, we're not talking about Jesus wrestling with cosmic powers or principalities, but rather he's looking at our own human relationships, how we as brothers and sisters in Christ interact with each other. The Pharisees had so focused on the outward obedience that they had missed the inward attitude. Jesus is saying that a right relationship with God is not developed by a list of do-nots. It's not so much what we do as it is who we are. It is our being that determines our righteousness before God. Well, the first one It's not just the action, it's the attitude. It's not just the action, it's the attitude. Well, look at verse 21 through 24. You've heard it said, the ancients were told, you should not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say unto you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the supreme court, and whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, And there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go your way and first be reconciled unto your brother and then come and present your offering. Jesus, of course, is reflecting back to one of the big ten. Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. Jesus is saying something like this. You've heard the familiar commandment about murder, but I have something fresh and revolutionary to teach you. This teaching is not only about don't commit murder, but rather don't be angry with your brother. The word for anger here is orge. It's it's thumos. It's kind of a a quick knee-jerk anger. This 
orge is a deep-seated, smoldering, festering cauldron from which violent action springs. In fact, I just heard yesterday, and it sounds funny, but it's true, more than some sort of robbery or drug deals, more than anything else, more people die because of anger, a response of anger, than any other cause. Greed, nothing else, causes murder like anger. But Jesus is saying, we must move beyond the action to examine our attitudes. Clarence Darrow was so bold to say, I've never killed a man, but I've read a lot of obituaries with pleasure. (laughs) I've never killed a man, but I've read a lot of obituaries with pleasure. That's the betrayal of our hearts, isn't it? How many times have we taken pleasure in someone else's fall? How many times have we been angry enough to wish that someone didn't even exist? Benjamin Franklin used to say, anger is never without reason, but seldom a very good one. Our anger steals away the good moments of life and exposes our worst selves to an already broken and sinful world. Perhaps you heard about the man who was being tailgated. I mean, she was right on his tail while he was driving. And it was that moment, that Amarillo moment when the light is yellow, it's turning yellow, and you know what to do. And here in Amarillo, people just go on and go through that light. But he did the right thing. He, he put on the brakes. He didn't risk it. He might make it. He not might, make, might not make it. So the light was turning yellow. He anticipated. And he put on the brakes. Well, she went wild behind him. She was already late. This was going to make her more late. Not only could he have made it, she felt sure she could have come behind. She was so close, and she could have made it. So she started cussing. She started flipping him off. She was in mid-rant when all of a sudden there's a knock on her window, and a very stern police officer asked her to exit the car. He cuffed her, put her in the police car, took her down to the station where she was fingerprinted, and she was putting a holding cell while photographed the whole nine yards. And finally, after a couple of hours, the policeman approached the cell, and He opened the door and took her down the hall where the arresting officer was there with all of her personal effects. And he said, I am very, very sorry for my mistake in arresting you. You see, when I I came up, you were blowing the horn and you were flipping the guy off and you were ranting and raving and cussing and said, "I, I saw that choose life license plate on the back of your car. And I, I saw that what would Jesus do bumper sticker and I saw that little fish on your trunk, and I was sure your car had been stolen. And and so I arrested you. I I have made a mistake. We are not to be imprisoned. Makes you want to take the bumper sticker off, doesn't it? By, by, orge. The Aramaic here for racha is just like you're harking. It's you, you despise so much, someone so much you want to spit upon them. And it's left untranslated, so you'll get the essence of rock, that you, you despise someone so much you could spit in their face. Not only rock, but also fool. Who is a fool in Scripture? 
The psalmist says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So if you're saying about your brother that he doesn't even have the fear of God in him, then he has no right to exist. Those are tough, tough words. Do not call your brother. The word for fool here is moros. You see, we get moron from that. Do not call your brother a moron, a moros, because you're saying he doesn't even he doesn't even fear God. If you do, then you ought to go to the garbage jump south of Jerusalem, that place where that began to represent the fire of hell, that place of future punishment. I want you to notice verse 22, the word brother two times. Verse 23, the word brother one time. Verse 24, the word brother again. This is a family matter, how we are to treat each other as a family of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, he goes so far to say, if you come to worship and you remember the, a brokenness you have with your brother, then you leave your offering at the altar and you go and be reconciled first to your brother and then you come back to the place of worship. The Mishnah taught that unless an offense with a neighbor is taken care of, even the day of atonement will not cover your sins. So take care of the the wrong you have with your brother. Well, there's another one here. It's not just the deed, it's the desire. It's not just the deed, it's the desire. Look at verse 27. That introductory formula. You have heard it said, you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Though, of course, the act of adultery has more so serious social consequences. The intentional desire to awaken lust within ourselves is sinful in God's sight. There is not a well-marked boundary between desire and deed. It's not just the deed, number two, it's also the desire. It may be well that these scribes and Pharisees that he's saying, we have to be better than they. That they were so busy trying to catch others in sinful acts that they never looked within their own hearts at the sins that was, were within them. In fact, we remember that scene in John's gospel, don't we? I believe it's John chapter 8 where the Pharisees set the trap to catch the woman and they're ready to stone the woman. They're actually trying to trap Jesus. Should we stone her? Should we not stone her? They are focusing in John 8 on the woman's outward waywardness. And Jesus says, I want you to look into your own hearts and the one among you in his heart who has no sin, let him cast the first stone. There is no difference to Jesus between the deed and the desire. They are the same. Look within yourself, Jesus is saying. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. Maybe you've heard the, of the bleeding Pharisees. They were they were so afraid that they would commit adultery, they put blinders, blindfolds over their eyes, and they stumbled in the streets until they bled and bruised themselves. And, well, the implication was that if we just cover our eyes, and, well, that won't work either, will it? For even if we wear a blindfold, it, it is a matter of the heart, 
Is it not? In fact, he goes on to say you might as well pluck out your eye or cut off your, your right hand. C.S. Lewis, who struggled to live celibate most of his life, was married eventually, but most of his life was celibate. He wrestled with the problem of lust, and he came to understand it well. In his literary work, he has his master demon screw tape explained to the apprentice tempter Wormwood the trough periods of the human undulation provide excellent opportunity for all sensual temptations, especially those of sex. The attack has much better chance of success when a man's whole inner world is drab and cold and empty. What C.S. Lewis is saying is this, that the undulation of life, we're up and then we're down and our life is up and then we're low. He's saying at the trough times when a man's world is cold and drab, he's telling the tempter that is a moment to come after a man with sensuality. Jesus is saying, don't be proud. You're not committing the deed. Rather, look at the desire of your heart. Well, there's a third example. Move beyond swearing and go to simplicity. Move beyond swearing and go to simplicity, verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of God, of his feet, or, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is evil. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Now, there's a lot in the Old Testament about vow-making and vow-keeping. You can find it in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But Jesus is saying something like this. If you have to swear by someone other than yourself, then you have behaved in such a way that your word is no longer any good. That you ought to be able to say yes and handshake and someone knows you will do what you say. Or you can say no and you will do what you say. You shouldn't have to swear by anything or anyone else. If you have to say, I promise four times before someone will take your word, there's something about your promise one time that is no longer any good in the community. Why the Jews had a saying, the Jewish tradition was, if you take an oath by the name of God, then you must keep the oath. But when you make the oath, if you do not use God's name, then you do not have to keep the oath. And Jesus is saying, no, do not swear by heaven. That's the home of God. And, and don't even swear by earth because that's where he puts his feet for his footstool. And, and don't swear by the holy city Jerusalem for that is his city. Don't swear by yourself. Don't, don't swear by anything. We have to be careful. Conduct ourselves in such a way that our yes means yes. And our no means no. We shouldn't have to say, I, I cross my heart and hope to die. Children speak that way. And their word is no good. God's 
children are children of truth. We know who is the father of lies and whose children tell lies. We are the children of the father of truth. I came across an article, man, interestingly enough, and I found it quite condemning upon myself by Robert Feldman, who said that men and women lie at virtually the same frequency. This is a social psychologist from the University of Massachusetts. What he said is though the genders lie an equal amount of time, that the genders lie for different reasons. Now, guys, I'm sorry, but this is what the uh, social psychologist has to say. Women lie in order to make other people feel better. Oh, I just love your outfit. If somebody tells you that this morning, I don't know. I just, I just love your outfit. Women lie to make other people feel better. Men lie to make themselves look better. Like, well, I brought in the big contract today. That's the lie of a man when he might have made one phone call and it was a, a team effort, but men lie to make themselves feel better. Let your yes be yes and your no be no with no lies in between. Well, Alice was going to bake a cake for the women's sell-off, mission sell-off at the church. And well, she forgot to do it until the very last minute and she had promised that she would bake a cake. And so, well, just really quickly, she threw together an, an, an angel food cake and as happens with those delicate cakes, when she took it from the oven to the counter, it went flat in the center and time, she had to get it down there. There was no time to spare. And so she looked around the house for something to bolster the center of the cake. There was no time to make another one. And she found a roll of toilet paper. And for those of you who've had experience baking cakes, this is not unrealistic. It's all about the looks at the end, right? And so she finds a, a small roll of toilet paper. She put it in the center of the angel food cake, and she put the icing over it, and it was a gorgeous cake that she turned into the ladies' WMU bake sale. And, well, the, the final profit product was magnificent, and she rushed it to the church. She had it all planned that her daughter, you get there right when the sale starts and you buy my cake back right no harm you get there you buy my cake the ladies get their money I don't have to bake another cake it looks good well when the daughter got there right on time some lady had come before the opening bell and she had already bought Alice's cake didn't know who it was Alice was beside herself and then things got worse a couple of days she went to play bridge there were two tables of bridge they played all afternoon and well the hostess guess what she brought out for dessert she brought out Alice's angel food cake and Alice was about to jump up run the kitchen tell the story hope they could all laugh together and before she could get up to run and tell the hostess about the toilet paper in the middle of the cake one of the ladies said that is the most beautiful cake and the deacon's wife hostess says thank you I made it myself Alice never uttered a word. <laughs> I found that college students, now I've got one, that if you're a parent and you talk to a college student, there's a 50% chance they'll tell you a lie during that conversation. Now, I hope that's not true in the case of my own family, and I hope that's not true in the case of your family, 
but it says they, uh, this was a, a university study. They followed 77 college students, recorded every conversation for a week, and those 77 college students told 1,000 lies, over 1,000 lies, a 77% chance they'll tell a fib to a stranger, a 48% chance they'll tell a fib to mom, and a 34% chance they'll tell a lie to a boyfriend or a girlfriend. So when she tells you the book was $150, it was probably $75, and you're getting taken for the rest. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Here's some agreements. Here's a way to manage your agreements. If you have no intention on keeping your word, don't say you'll do it. If you're a tile contractor, don't say, I'll be there Tuesday morning at 8, if you might not be there Tuesday morning at 8. Just say, I'll get to it this week. It could be as early as Tuesday. It might be as late as Friday. But I'll call you the night before and let you know. We get caught in lies. It just becomes a way of life. Avoid making fuzzy agreements. Don't say, I'll get back to you sometime on that, which is another way of saying, I don't want to tell you no. Just say no. That's not anything that I can do. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And when you have to break an agreement, tell someone at the earliest possible moment. We've had troubles with the computers this afternoon. That will not be in on Monday morning. I just wanted to let you know. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Number four, not, no retali- not retaliation, but release. Not retaliation, but release. Look at verse 38. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And whoever shall force you to go one mile... Go with him too. Give of him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. This idea of an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth is called lex talionis. It is very, very ancient, all the way back to the Hammurabi Law Code, maybe as old as 18th century B.C. The intent of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was not to encourage violence, but to limit violence. If someone knocks out your tooth, you cannot, the ancient law code said, cut off his head. You can only also knock out his tooth. You see that? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus is saying, now that we are God's people... We got to move beyond lex talionis, not an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. It is not for us now retaliation, but rather it is release. So if someone slaps you on the right cheek, now if a right-handed man slaps you on the right cheek, it's backhanded. You see that? And that's the most insulting kind of slap. Go that way, turn the other so he can catch you on the rebound. So boom, boom. If someone gives you the insulting slap of the back of their hand on your right cheek, then turn the cheek and let them slap the other one too. If someone tries to get your undergarment, give them your outer garment as well. You remember Simon of Serene who was conscripted by the Roman soldiers to carry the cross for Jesus. If they make you carry it a mile, they'd be willing to carry it a second mile. That's so hard to, to not want to get even but it's not retaliation, it's, it's release. The last one is not just the friend, but it's also the foe. 
is not just the friend, but it's also the foe. Look at verse 43. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he calls the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same. Now, the Old Testament never says, hate your enemies. Now, there were some Jewish communities like the Qumran community who had written things like, it is okay to hate all the sons of darkness. But the book of Proverbs actually says, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. But they were saying, not God's word, they were saying that you can hate your enemy, that you can love your, your neighbor, your family, but hate your enemy. Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. If you'll pray for her, the one you don't like, if you'll pray for him, the one you despise, the one who makes your blood boil, it will change the bitterness inside of you. Jesus calls on his followers to be so different and do the hard thing. He calls on you to love even your enemy. Christ died for us while we were yet his enemies, right? So there you have it. You have heard it said, but I say unto you, if you're going to live like the Pharisees and you can't do any better than that, Jesus is saying to his followers, you might as well call it quits because they are not uniquely my people. You're not really godlike if you live that way for even the publican, the tax gatherer, the worst sinner, well, he loves his friend. You have heard it said, watch out for the hand. But let me change that, Jesus said. You must watch out for the heart. Let us pray. God, sometimes we're so proud of what, about what we haven't done with our hand. And we forget that you're able to look beyond the hand to the heart. Perhaps there's someone here this morning, oh God, who needs to come and live by that new kind of righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Maybe there's someone who needs to come and say yes to Jesus so that he can, even because of the cross, love his enemy. And who among us, oh God, doesn't need to say in our own hearts, forgive us for watching the hand, but forgiving the heart. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.